Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Since Eastern Europe's brutal transition to capitalism in the 1990s, and following the impact of the arrival of an increased number of refugees in Europe in 2016, Central Europe has seen an illiberal revolt of marginalised white people against neoliberal globalism. In his new book, White But Not Quite, Ivan Kalmar, professor in the Department of Anthropology and at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, focuses on the role of race in these developments and tensions, explaining how the concepts of race, liberalism and Central Europe are all fluid and complex, hard to define, yet constructed together. He argues that dismissive attitudes towards Eastern Europeans are a form of racism and explores the close relation between racism towards Central Europeans and racism by Central Europeans, a people white, but not quite. Hello, Ivan. Hello, thanks for inviting me. Oh, thank you very much for speaking to me. Um, It's a really fascinating book and I hope we can do it justice today. So I wanted to start by defining a liberal democracy as seen in Central Europe, for example, under the control of Viktor Orban in Hungary. What are its characteristics in the book you say that moods and emotions play an important role and how is it different from neoliberalism? Um, As you uh, are saying, it's a illiberal democracy is a term uh, that's used by Viktor Orban. He didn't invent it, but he invented its current uh, usage, uh, which uh, seems to be a bit of an oxymoron because you would expect uh, democracy to be liberal. And that's his point, that you can still have a democracy, but it doesn't have to be liberal. So what does he mean by liberal? I think he means uh, a kind of attitude uh, that uh, it's a free for all, like anything goes. And he doesn't want uh, anything to go because his emotion is that he's protecting something. And what he's protecting is the white patriarchal family, I argue against uh, competition, or as he sees it, wrongly attacks by people of color, or people of unconventional, not heteronormative sexual orientations. Uh, and so th- he's against liberalism as he sees it, an ideology uh, that uh, allows Uh, a lot of uh, opinions and practices that don't fall into those of the heteronormative uh, white patriarchal family. Mm. And how is that democratic? Uh, That's because uh, illiberal democracy is a majoritarian uh, way of thinking about society. The majority should get its way. The majority are the normal people. Again, in Hungary that and many other places that would be white patriarchal families. And these normal people don't want to be bothered uh, as he sees it attacked or uh, interfered with uh, in the running of the country. 
because they're not the majority. So his view of democracy is the majority should rule. Uh, there's always been a tension between democracy and freedom. Uh, and he chooses the side of democracy, uh, and that's much more important than freedom, including, for example, human rights. Um, so how is it different, this different from neoliberalism? That's a really good question, and a lot of people are, are thinking about it, because neoliberalism, uh, as the neo suggests, is a new form of liberalism. But here we're talking about market liberalism. So that would be about the free market. And neoliberalism is to let the free market work its way. It's neo because it comes after a period when in Western democracies, the welfare state was the model that was at least ideally followed. And so neoliberalism brings back the free market and undoes the welfare state. Yeah. Now, where does Orban's illiberal democracy stand on this is not very clear because uh, Orban has a kind of limited welfare state, again, on this majoritarian principle and uh, exclusionary principle doesn't include everyone. So his welfare policies don't at all favor the poorest people and they don't favor the Roma minority, which is a racial minority in Hungary, but they do favor traditional lower middle class, upper working class uh, families. Uh, for example, he gives out uh, quite important financial support to large families. But part of the idea is to uh, make sure that Hungary doesn't need migrants because the white people of Hungary will reproduce themselves. I see. Just to be clear, when you talk about Central Europe, you're talking about Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia and Poland? Yes, those yeah, are the four, four yeah. countries. They're also known as the Visegrad Four. And mm -hmm. in my book, I'm focusing on them. There yeah. are other countries that uh, are sometimes or often even called Central European uh, Austria, uh, but it's different because it doesn't have the communist part. Right. Uh, past, yeah. uh, you know, even Switzerland sometimes and Germany or the Baltic states or, of course, Romania, certainly Croatia, Slovenia. Mm -hmm. But these four countries are the ones that I think are never left out when people talk about Central Europe, Poland, okay. Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary. OK, um, so in the book, I mean, the book's called White But Not Quite. What role does whiteness play in a liberalism? That's a, a, um, a very good question. And uh, so we have to, uh, I think, think about what whiteness means. And in my book, as well as in many other uh, places, uh, whiteness really means white privilege. Yes. So... Uh, that's why I'm able to talk of white, but not quite, because in a figurative way, you can be more white and less white, which really means you have more white privilege or less white privilege. Yeah. Like obviously, white privilege is not shared by all white people. You know, feminist scholars have told us that women play a specific role in white privilege, uh, reproducing it. And uh, in terms of class, uh, men and women who are 
not of the privileged social classes don't share equally in white privilege. But that's just the point. They don't share equally, but they feel that they should. So this is where a kind of racist uh, white nationalism functions to, to express wrongly, to misdirect the frustrations of, of people who don't uh, fully enjoy uh, the, the achievements of society, who don't have okay. full power in society, even in a society where white privilege is structural. Okay. Yes. So uh, such people, I suggest, are the backbone in terms of numbers, maybe not in terms of ideology or ideas, but in terms of the support for illiberal movements. Uh, they're supported all over the world by white people who don't fully enjoy white privilege. That's sort of how I define white, but not quite. Okay. Yeah. Why, do, why do people in Central Europe not fully enjoy white privilege? Because it's what we call a peripheral area uh, and its relationship to the core of white privilege, the, the sort of real Western, more, more white core Western countries of Western Europe and North America, the relationship of Central and Eastern Europe to those is uh, one where they don't enjoy the full white privilege inherited from the colonial past yeah. that those core countries have. Okay, so uh, a, a regrettable but powerful way to channel uh, frustration here is, look, I'm white, I should be having the power, not these other people, you know, pushed in there through anything from migration or to yeah. affirmative action and supported by uh, wishy-washy, soft, white, liberal um, ideology. Yeah. So that's how, uh, you know, illiberalism to me is a, a misdirected expression of frustration by white people at least in Central Europe, yeah. uh, with not having full white power, but also in other parts of the world. So this, this goes on to my next question, which is about the dynamics of the relationships between Central Europe and the West um, and the East um, and Eastern Europe as well. Um, so like you just said, you described the success of the liberal ideas and politics in Central Europe as misdirected reaction to the region's position in the global hierarchy of power. So how has the West's perceptions of Central Europe and its treatment of the countries in this region contributed to this illiberal revolt? In my view, when communism, communist-style socialism collapsed in 1989, mm. And it was said that Europe would unite, East and West would unite. That wasn't the real intention. Uh, I think it was never meant to be that they would unite on an equal basis. Right. Just as Central Europeans 
were imagining themselves moving west, sort of figuratively speaking, returning to the west. Mm-hmm. Western business was looking forward to moving east. And the idea was to use the these sort of emerging markets or new parts of the uh, Western system to use Central Europe uh, especially as an area that would provide cheap labor mm. and would provide new markets for Western goods. So this is capitalism, the needs of capitalism. It, it's yeah. the needs of capitalism, exactly. And uh, so the role that Central Europe was to play was comparable to the role that traditionally is played by most of the global South mm-hmm. or, or the former colonies. Uh, I, there are many differences, but in this sense of expanding to acquire areas of cheap labor and new markets, it, it was very comparable. So what we saw was also on the side of rhetoric and ideas is that instead of the public in the West uh, representing Central Europeans as Western people, Mm -hmm. as they themselves imagined that they were, who had been returned to the West, Instead of that, I think we see see an increase after 1989 of stereotyping about Eastern Europeans and presenting them as backward and not really congenitally capable of uh, being full partners in the liberal democratic West. And uh, we see that in movies, uh, for example, (laughs) people think that during the Cold War, in movies, the bad guys were the Russians. And that's often true, but I'm thinking, for example, of the Bond franchise and the enemy in uh, James Bond movies before 1989 was not the Russians, uh, but uh, Spectre, which was an organization that both uh, uh, the West and Russia tried in their own way to fight. Right. Often they were sort of renegade communists in Spectre, but it still it wasn't Russia. Okay. And uh, you know, after since then, uh, the bad guys may be Russians, but uh, the the bad guys um, uh, are often it's not Russia itself, but it's Russian people, Eastern Europeans, ranging from those who peddle decrepit Soviet arms on the uh, international market to terrorists, to to Russian gangsters, uh, sex workers uh, presented as typical Eastern European prostitutes. Mm. Uh, So the image uh, has gone down the drain since 1989 of Central and Eastern Europe. And, uh, and, and uh, I think that uh, is uh, connected to the economic uh, uh, domination, intention to dominate by Western business, uh, because I think there's always some kind of indirect connection between uh, the economy and, uh, you know, culture. That's fascinating. 
because you're aware of all those stereotypes that I'd never seen 1989 as a turning point for them. But yeah, it's probably true. Um, a quick extra question. You say that illiberalism is a self-defeatist solution to this. Why misdirected and self-defeatist? Well, Jessica, I think I say misdirected, but I don't know that I said self-defeating, although I hope it would. Oh, I'm, maybe I maybe I added that bit, sorry. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> would like it that way, to, to happen that way. That's my optimism. Uh, what I mean by misdirected <laughs> is because there is great potential for Central and Eastern Europeans with the experience that I described to build to to see the connection between their own situation and that of the global south right. and to connect as many scholars are doing and other people the post-socialist condition with the uh, post-colonial condition uh, but instead what they're doing is like you read they don't try to dismantle the system of global white privilege they just want to actually preserve it and to find uh, a privileged place in it, okay, hoping right, yeah. that their whiteness will entitle them to that. So their goal is to reform uh, the West. You know, I, I really want to stress this. It's sometimes the, uh, Orban and other such people as described as anti-Western. They're not anti-Western. They're in tight coalition with people in the West, like ranging from Trump to Le Pen to Salvini. Mm. What they want to do is they want to reform the West so that white people will get what they see as their proper privileges. And that is really counterproductive uh, as compared to what you and I would like to see yeah. is progress against racism, which could happen on the basis of cooperation between um, marginalized white people and uh, people of color, such as Central Europeans and people in the global South. But is it self-defeating? I don't know. Like, I would like to be an optimist, but... Uh, that was my it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it has to be said that illiberals in Central Europe is, doesn't have just a clear path forward, nor is it uniform in the area at all. You know, uh, no, Orban yeah. might have lost the elections. In Poland, the uh, illiberal party might lose the elections. And Czech Republic and Slovakia, are. it's not fair to say that they're illiberal democracies. They're not. They're right. liberal democracies where they're strong illiberal movements. So the success of illiberalism is not guaranteed, uh, but neither is its defeat. Yeah. Just going back um, to where you mentioned people of color um, just now, how does racism against Central Europeans compare to racism against black people and people of color? It might be a really obvious question, but one worth asking, I think. Well, I don't think it's an obvious question. Uh, to me, it's maybe the most challenging question okay. for someone whose intentions are to oppose racism. Uh, because it's clear that racism against Black people and racism against people of color, I think it's totally clear, is uh, far more violent, far more brutal, and far more entrenched systematically. And also at the personal level, 
it's far more difficult for a person who is a black or a person of color to think that their children will escape racial discrimination, but uh, it's easier to do that for someone who's Polish or, or, or Czech. So I think, I think this is uh, very important and I, I fear that some people might misinterpret talking about racism against Eastern Europeans, which I think is real, uh, as the same thing. Yeah. But the question, it's not the same thing. But there are many similarities. Uh, I think all the, I would guess that almost everyone who has Eastern European roots or is Eastern European themselves and is listening to this uh, podcast or watching this video will agree with me that they've been exposed to, if not attacks, then contempt, uh, being ridiculed, uh, being demeaned by uh, people, uh, Western, white Western Europeans and uh, white North Americans. I, I there must be people who wouldn't agree with me, but I haven't met them yet. So okay. maybe they'll let me know in reaction to this podcast. Yeah. Uh, and there have been uh, violent attacks against Eastern Europeans uh, during the Brexit debate yeah. in Britain, for example. But also there are other cases in my book that I mention. And I would even add that even Central Europeans can be violent towards more Eastern Eastern Europeans as they see it in their yeah. mind. It's a transitive racism. And there's thousands, literally tens of thousands of cases of uh, hate crimes against Ukrainians have been recorded in Poland over the years, uh, in spite of the magnificent welcome that Polish people are now uh, extending mm. to Ukrainian refugees. So, uh, yeah, so there is a similarity, but it's not the same thing. Why then label it racism, which suggests that it is the same thing, even though that's not the intention? In other words, uh, to call it racism, it means it's the same kind of thing, not identical, but somehow belongs to the same category that we can call racism. And uh, the reason that I do that is because... As I mentioned, capitalism, we call it racial capitalism, is what in recent centuries has produced the kind of racism that we know. Always the intent, the, the system, it's more than intention, it's the process of accumulating wealth in only some parts of the world, as I see it, in only among some white people. Yeah. And so in the first, even among white people, that process of accumulating wealth, restricting it to only some uh, is functioning. So I see it as kind of the same othering and discriminatory and exploitative process that in the first instance reserves the accumulation of wealth for white people, and, but also in the second instance, uh, reserves it to only some white people. And there we can talk about both Eastern and Western Europeans, but also class, you know, upper class, working class, and, yeah. and gender issues. 
So this is what I would like to do is for uh, the term race to enter discussion, the discussion about Eastern, Central and Western Europe and highlighting what they have in common with racism against black people and people of color, but without suggesting that it has the same intensity or uh, prevalence or that it's equally damaging. So I'd just like to uh, recall that uh, the American historian who's black, Thomas Holt, mm -hmm. he said, I'm quoting him, race is something blacks have, ethnicity belongs to whites. Right. And I was saying this ironically, it's not the way he wants it or the way I want it. Because mm -hmm. the other aspect of this issue that you raised is that I'm often told by people that, oh yes, there is uh, discrimination against uh, Eastern Europeans, but why do you call it race? Why don't, they're not a race, they're an ethnic group uh, or they're ethnic groups. So why don't you talk about attacks on ethnicity as opposed to race? And, you know, there's so much to be said about it and we don't have time. I'm not suggesting that race and ethnicity are the same thing, but they're very closely related. And I question why people would be so afraid to use the term race uh, when it has to do with white people. And if that doesn't actually further the othering of people of color from white people, which I you know, would not like to further. Yeah, yeah. And so, talking about everything kind of in similar terms, it speaks to what you were talking about before about like um, aligning with the global South and coming together a bit more to fight against um, the structures of the world that enable these things. And capitalism needs racism, doesn't it? And all the other like attacks and othering in order to justify taking things away from one group of people and another group of people exactly. having more. Um, as well as racism towards Central Europeans in the book, you also talk about racism by Central Europeans, along with things like anti-Semitism, homophobia. Are, cent are Central Europeans more racist than Western Europeans? Well, um, my answer is no, uh, but it has to be qualified. So, uh, there are all kinds of quantitative data that I put in my book, which show that on, to the extent that you can measure racism, uh, these four countries I'm talking about vary, uh, but they tend to be a little bit more racist in those terms than if you take them as a group and compare them to Western countries as a group. Okay. But once you get away from these group things, then you see that, for example, you know, one Central European country is on some count, like, would you like to have a Muslim live next to you or something like that, mm -hmm. is actually more uh, accepting than some Western countries. So, so it's not, not a, a, like an iron curtain between uh, West and Central Europe. And when you take Western and Central Europe together, the statistics in my book show that the Central European countries are a little more like the West and uh, together uh, less likely to give these racist and homophobic and Islamophobic 
uh, anti-Semitic answers than, say, people in Russia or some other uh, Eastern European countries. So there is nothing in the data that if you didn't expect Eastern Europe to be different and included Central Europe in it, there's nothing in the data that would actually sort of impersonally spit out, you know, the conclusion that uh, that Eastern Europeans or certainly Central Europeans are more racist. Uh, I think it's a kind of displacement in the, if we could metaphorize in the Western mind, mm -hmm. the kind of displacement of racism towards the East so that the West will appear to be free of it. And so we can say that liberal democracy is uh, free of it. But actually, the fact that liberal democracy has been historically connected to racial capitalism means that all of the things we mentioned, uh, I think, or most of them, the uh, uh, racism, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, they mostly originate, the ideas come from the West. Mm. Let me put it that way. Uh, and uh, I know it's debatable to some extent, but let's say for the most part, they originate in the, in the West. And in the form that we find them now in the East, the form is not different. It's the same ideas that you hear from a Russian anti-Semite and an American anti-Semite. Very little difference. So there is one difference, though, mm -hmm. which is that in Central Europe, illiberalism has been more successful politically. Okay? So it's the same illiberalism. Say you asked me more about racism. Mm. It's the same racism, but through Central European illiberalism, it's been more successful there. So then the question is, why is it more successful there, and it's very easy to be racist about it and to say, well, it's Eastern European culture, that's the way they are, you know, they just tend to be more racist, they're backward, and uh, they haven't experienced uh, liberal democracy, which is a half-truth for mm -hmm. Central Europe. Uh, but I think the real reason for that is that we find are two. First, that white liberalism is characteristic of frustrated white populations yeah and frustrated by recent developments uh, in uh, neoliberal to come back to that term uh, capitalism and so such frustrated people are found in uh, rural areas of the u.s uh, or of france so they're also found in the West or in the Rust Belts. Uh, but in a way, Central Europe itself is uh, a peripheral area like the ones that I just mentioned. Yeah. And it is mostly white. So it's as if though all of Central Europe was like some of the United States. Right. And Europe, it, it's white, some of its white areas. It's a huge exaggeration because what I'm talking about exists also in Central Europe. And we have some glamorous cities where you can get an excellent cafe latte 
just like in the West, mm -hmm. in Warsaw, in Prague, in Budapest. And the wealth produced in those cities is greater than in the less privileged areas of, let's say, France or Spain, where I am just now, yeah. Andalusia or the United States. So even in Central Europe, there's this distinction between uh, those where the areas where wealth accumulates and the white areas that are peripherized. But on the whole, all of Central Europe functions like uh, Southern Spain or yeah. rural France, right? This is what I'm suggesting. And so that's conducive to illiberalism, illiberalism of the same kind as in the West, but given the nature uh, of uh, how it's worked out, it has finds more support perhaps in uh, most Central European areas. So that's one reason the similarity between Central Europe as a whole to the white periphery, as I call it, elsewhere. Mm. Uh, but the second reason is that people forget that uh, to fight racism, it's not like fighting racism doesn't depend on uh, the charitable inclinations of privileged white people. Right. They, to, to fight racism, you need those who are discriminated to fight. Okay. Now, in central, those who are discriminated against to fight, or discriminated against yes. to fight. We need black people and people of color, and not just white liberals, to right. to fight uh, racism. But in Central Europe, the most clearly recognizable oppressed racial group is the Roma, mm -hmm. and the Roma are extremely badly organized politically, comparatively speaking, yeah. to people of color elsewhere. And, and so the fight against racism relies on, on white people because there are not enough yet migrants, people who moved, for, uh, people of, of color who live there. There are not enough of them yet to uh, constitute a political movement that I see. Uh, yeah. could seriously threaten uh, these uh, illiberal and racist ideas, which you can vent these ideas, you can vent with more impunity in Central Europe, because you don't have to worry that there's someone there who's going to stand up to you yeah. personally for having personally attacked them. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, because when you were talking, I was saying, well, some people would argue that it shouldn't be down to the groups experiencing racism to fight against it. But when you talk about like numbers and the numbers of people experiencing racism in a country, it does make sense that it's a lot yeah, easier to be racist. If, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. it shouldn't be down to them. That would no, be yeah. a very uh, awful thing to suggest, but... Uh, but also it uh, shouldn't be up to only white people. Yes. To, to uh, yeah. White racism is, is what I mean. Yeah. And the achievements that we see in history uh, against racism are mostly achievements by people of color yeah, and true. not gifts by white people yeah. to them. Yeah. Now, apart from the Roma, which is a very unfortunate, terrible situation, mm. Fighting racism in Central Europe is more or less a matter of 
white people of conscience yeah. because there are not yet very large numbers of yeah. uh, people of color and also talking about anti-Semitism, there are no longer large numbers of Jews, uh, except in, in maybe in Budapest. Mm. So, uh, yeah, but it's going to change mm. because yeah. more people will move there regardless of what Orban or anybody wants. Yeah, uh, and then what happens to a liberalism then? Maybe it becomes yeah. more difficult. At, at that point, there, when there's sufficient uh, mm. motivation and weight behind uh, anti-racist movements from mm. more people who are themselves victims in alliance with those many white people there who are fighting racism now. Yeah. I think that will make a difference. Yeah, yeah, surely. Um, so the book is very much a personal account as well as a scholarly study. And you describe, <clears throat> excuse me, you describe yourself as being white, but not quite. So what are your links to Central Europe and how did these influence your decision to write the book? Well, I, as I say in the book, I, it is a, also a personal effort. I'm originally from Central Europe. And so that already makes me white, but not quite yeah. in terms of the book. Uh, and, uh, but I'm not quite a Central European because I'm a Canadian, <laughs> which I'm not quite because I'm a Central European. Uh, and, you know, every year since I moved to North America, I've been, almost every year I've been back to Europe, uh, trying to come to terms with this kind of uh, mixed uh, identity. And when it comes to the concrete uh, sort of ethnic identities there, I'm a Czech citizen as well as Canadian, but I'm not quite a Czech because the reason that I am is just that my father was studying medicine in Prague when I was born. Okay. Uh, which then, uh, I, but we were there for only until I was one year old. Right. And then... Very uh, much, not I, quite. <laughs> <laughs> then my family moved to Slovakia. So when I was there, in official papers, my nationality was Slovak. Right. But I didn't quite feel Slovak because my mother's from Hungary. Uh, she's from Budapest. So I don't feel quite Hungarian because I never lived there, although it's one of my uh, mother tongues. Right. And, uh, and I'm Jewish, uh, which kind of is, is typical for Jews in Central Europe to have this kind of background, or, or it was typical. Uh, which made some people say that the Jews were the real Europeans in that region. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, not quite. And, uh, you know, the anti-Semitic uh, uh, prejudice has it the contrary. They're not European at all and should get out of Europe, which is part of what motivated uh, Zionism. Mm. So I'm also not quite Jewish. So I'm, I'm not quite anything, but uh, I feel that, as I say in the book, not quite could, uh, could be uh, beneficial. It could mean not only 
So it gives you an insider perspective, but also an outsider perspective so that yeah. you judge uh, more in a global context uh, what this and that identity is. You talk, yeah, you talk about not quiteness in the book as um, having power, like because you can be empathetic. And yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, I've kind of, I've also I wanted to finish the interview and ask you um, about Ukraine because that's obviously right. happening at the moment as we're recording. And I feel like a lot of the arguments in the book, there might be things there that help us to understand that a little bit better. Right. So with the war that's going on, do you think that the West would have been more likely to step in for a country like France or Italy, which is seen as fully white? And how do you think the war changed the Western perception of Ukraine as belonging within Europe and kind of whereabouts in Europe it is? Well, I feel that certainly you're right. And the West uh, would have stepped in. I don't think anybody would doubt it uh, if it were uh, a truly Western country. Mm. And we see now what's happening with the application for NATO membership by mm. Finland and, uh, and uh, Sweden that, you know, there's a lot of debate, like, will it upset the Russians and will they blow us all up? is definitely a discussion, but it's a discussion about whether Finns or Swedes should want to join. But if they want to join, I'm sure you agree with me that there won't be any objection to it from no. any NATO member, nor I think do they have to fear that if the Russians attack them, NATO won't come to their aid. Okay. Now, if you compare that to Ukraine, which has struggled since... Uh, for many years, and in 2008, we're told that their NATO membership will be delayed indefinitely. Mm. And they're even now have no prospect practically of joining NATO. And if you compare that to the situation of, let's say, Poland or Lithuania, mm -hmm. which are NATO members, and Joe Biden insists that if there's an attack on their territory, NATO will respond. Yeah. But I think now we're not quite so sure. At yeah. least people there are not necessarily 100% sure. I am not 100% sure that that would happen. Mm -hmm. So this is where this uh, racism against Eastern Europeans uh, has its effect, but also what I mentioned, the graduation of it. So some people are more Eastern Europeans than others, you know, Eastern Germans think that Czechs are more less Western. Uh, Czechs think this about Slovaks. Some of them, anyway. Slovaks may think this about uh, Ukrainians in Ukraine. The Western Ukrainians may have thought this about Eastern Europe. Yeah. Ukrainians, and at the end of this uh, scale is Russia, which is really Russia is really the prototypical Eastern European country. And all the content of racism against Central Europeans is colored by not distinguishing them from Russians. Mm. Okay, so as if they were just like Russians. But they themselves think that someone else is more like Russians. And Ukraine has been at uh, the target of that the most. So mm. in a way, next to Russia, Ukraine is the most Eastern European country 
And it's not only Putin, but also we in the West and perhaps in the center of Europe have also treated Ukraine as if they were kind of uh, little Russia. Yeah. And now they surprised us. Now they're fighting for their independence. They're showing us that they do not want to be Russians. They often use the term, we're in the middle of Europe. Yeah. I talked about this recently to present themselves as if they were Central Europeans. So, I, I, we, we, which they are, but to, to focus on them being Central Europeans and therefore a little more deserving of uh, membership in the Western community than they uh, have been thought to. Do you think that's changed the perception of the West? About yes, I think it, it has greatly changed. And now I think we all uh, think of Ukraine as belonging to the uh, community of democratic uh, nations. But mm -hmm. that underlying racism, I think if we don't become aware of it, will not come, go away and will continue to cause tragic problems uh, also for Ukraine. So yeah. one thing I'd like to accomplish in my book is for us to become aware that uh, this form of racism exists. Yeah, yeah. And awareness of how it plays out between the West, Central Europe between and Eastern Europe and those relationships, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Ivan, for speaking to me today. It's been fascinating. And I think you've explained really clearly the arguments in the book. And I found that really helpful. Thank you very much, Jessica, for giving me a chance. Yeah, absolute pleasure. White But Not Quite, Central Europe's A Liberal Revolt by Ivan Kalmar is available on our website. So you can find out more at bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.